Church, would you open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8? Hebrews chapter 8. And if you would take a minute just to pray with me as we enter into God's Word. Father, we come at this moment to just worship you through your word, to continue worshiping you as we think long about what you have said to us. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that at this point and in this time that you would give us the strength to worship you with all of our heart, souls, and minds as we look at this passage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I wonder why it is exactly that Bands, artists are consistently, faithfully releasing new albums, singles, EPs, all the time. Year after year after year, they will release one in 2016, and then again in 2017, and then a Christmas album for 2017, yay, it's And then one for 18, and again for this year in 2019. And when they do this, if they're being interviewed or perhaps posting online, almost as if on cue, they will always say, this album was the album that we've been meaning to create all along, this one. And they'll wax on and on about how, well, for this one, we brought in producer so-and-so, and and they will say, well, um, we were actually able to get a hold of artist yada yada, This one, the record company stopped interfering and let us create what we really wanted to get out there. This album, pick it up. And so you think to yourself, excellent, I will buy it. Indeed, I'll either uh, purchase it or I will go to Apple Music or Spotify and I will add the album to my playlist. And you start listening for 2017. Then 2018 rolls around and another album. And they say, this album was the album that we meant to create all along. This album is our best. It does not get any better than this one. Subtext, by our album. Friends, long before bands were doing this, long before TV show producers were doing this, long before book writers were all doing this, God himself did this. God himself began to put into place strong agreements between he and man, and how they would relate to him, and how it would be that he would be their God, and they would be his people, and he did so by what we call his covenants. Strong promises where both parties would agree to be loyal to one another. But as you go through the Old Testament, and as you look through it, you will find that God begins with a, uh, he cuts a covenant, so to speak, with Noah, the Noetic covenant. And then with Abraham, as you keep reading, He does it again. And as he does so, we find that the Abrahamic covenant is not just a repeat, but it's it's better. He says, it's not just that I'm not going to wipe out uh, the inhabitants of the earth, but also that I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to provide for you the offspring. It's, it's, It's as if God was saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you here the best. This is the one I've been wanting to create all along, Abe. And then it occurred again with, with the Israelites and Moses in Exodus. And again with David and the kingdom. But finally, 
Finally, church, it became clear that when God spoke about cutting another album, cutting another covenant, that this new one would be so good, it would be difficult to grasp just how good it would really be. This new one would be so good. We hear God saying, I'm going to give you my very best. I'm going to give you my son. I will give you, ultimately, me. It's my very best. And what is heard from a distance in the Old Testament, it's a bit fuzzy. It's a bit clear in how it's actually being expressed to us. But by the time we turn in our Bibles here to the book of Hebrews, what we get is the most clear and explicit discussion on the new covenant in the New Testament. What we find, though, is it raises for men many questions that any Christian should not be ignorant on. Even if we have just a, a cursory, you know, one-dimensional answer for these questions, we are, have questions raised that, how is Jesus a high priest? What is the new covenant? Are there any implications for living in the new covenant? How does one even get into the new covenant? And we're going to touch just briefly on these points. I, each one of these could, deserves a, a sermon series in full or, or books are written about each one of these questions. But we're going to peruse through these as we look at a better high priest with a better work as given in the promise of the new covenant. And that's exactly how this will unfold as we go through these three points. A better high priest, verses 1 and 2, for those taking notes. A better work, verses 3 to 6. As promised in the New Covenant, verses 7 through 13. First, a better high priest. Bruce Ashford, recently he posted an article. Not sure if some of you saw it. It was entitled, Jordan Peterson, a high priest for our secular age. Peterson, a renowned clinical psychologist, and we might even call him some sort of religious guru, uh, has really splashed on the, the, the internet and become a YouTube sensation, for one. And what he's trying to do is take the chaotic moral place that we find ourselves in, that the West has come into, and he's trying to bring us about a way to get out of that moral chaos as we have embraced secularism. And so Ashford, in this article, as he's looking at Jordan Peterson's recent book, 12 Rules for Life, he urges readers to take responsibility for themselves. The world around them by making it a little bit more like heaven and a little bit less like hell. Peterson says, in doing so, this will help us, catch this, to atone for our sins and also to replace our shame with pride. This high priest of our secular age, he calls us to atone for our own wrongdoing. And yet, as I searched through and went through every single usage of atonement in the scriptures, not once was I able to find a spot where we ourselves are atoning for our own sins. Not once. It's always the work of another. It's always the work of the high priest to atone, to intercede, to mediate, to reconcile. A broken relationship between God and man. This Jordan Peterson, he asks us ultimately to do what God says we cannot do. This Peterson high priest turns out not to be really a high priest or a reconciler at all. Friends, this leaves us needing a high priest. Verses 1 and 2. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have 
such a high priest. The one who was seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. We are actually butting right here into the middle of an argument that the author of Hebrews has been making. And so the point has actually been running from chapters 5 through 7, building up and showing how Jesus is the high priest. And chapters 8 through 10 unfolds and unpacks the type of work that this high priest does. And what we find then is that God, in contrast to the old covenant, the old covenant law would appoint a high priest, though they were sinful, though they were weak, Though they would die, but God in great contrast, he appoints a high priest who is not weak, but powerful. Who is not tainted, but perfect. And who will not die, but live. It is this type of high priest that we have, church. How is it that this Jesus, our high priest, can, how is it that he can even be our high priest? He's not here in Portland right now mediating on your behalf, is he? This, this high priest, Jesus, he's not even in Jerusalem. He's not at a temple. He's not offering sacrifices. This Jesus high priest, he's not on YouTube. He's not traveling around writing books. So how is it that he can be our high priest then? And what we find in verses 1 and 2 show us indeed through him we have all the elements we need of a high priest and of the temple Moreover, as you read there, it says we have a real priest and a real, catch this, tent or, or temple, a true tent. See how the author uses that word? That's important, true. Uh, Greg Beale states that true here actually signifies or represents the real state of affairs. True is God's way of saying, this is my real album. This is the true album, the one I've been waiting, wanting to create all along. It's the crescendo of his work. It was the album he had all in mind all along. And so if we're looking for, friends, if we're looking for the real out there, we're looking in the wrong place. We must always look for the real up. Jesus is our high priest who mediates on your behalf because he ministers not in an earthly temple, but in the real one which is located in heaven. Now, from the first century perspective, the, the, the author here brings this up with good reason. Because from the first century perspective, there was this issue going on where the Jews had a very ornate system. Even the Romans had a system. So the Jews would peer in upon the Christians and they'd say, you guys, what's wrong with you? I mean, I'm looking here. I'm looking at what you do here on a Sunday gathering. And look at what I find here. I, I see no priest. I see no high priest. No temple. No sacrificial system at all. No routine feast, no day of atonement. What's wrong with you? I mean, even the Romans have their offerings that they give up to their gods. Are you guys religious at all? It's like a scene in the, in the school lunchroom. You know, where these girls are trying out for softball. And then it's posted up for everyone to see who made the team. And so Emma, she goes over to Sophia. And Emma says... Hey, Sophia, I, I, I'm looking at the list here, and I, and I just noticed that you're really not on the list at all. I mean, you didn't make the team this year. I'm wondering, it's, it's probably because you don't have any skills, right? You know, it's probably, and then Sophia must humbly respond. She responds to Emma by saying, I'm, I'm sorry, Emma, you're wrong. Actually, in truth, I did, I did make the team. I just, I didn't make the junior varsity team, nor did I make the varsity team. During tryouts, the college saw me, and they brought me onto their team. I'm on a superior team. 
It's, it's in another field with other players. And it operates by totally different rules. And we, likewise, must humbly tell our friends, as Christians, in the way we worship here on Sunday morning, we're on another team. And if they would but humble themselves, stop defying God, and turn to Jesus, who can be their high priest, their advocate, then their entrance onto that team is not based on skill. It's free and open to them. They can belong to the family of God, the church, where the king and the kingdom and the altar and the glory, listen, they're not visibly seen, but are no less real. Jesus knew that this would be an issue for us, and so he told us this in advance. He actually says in Luke, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that you can observe. Nor will they say, look, there it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God, it's in the midst of you. Christians have long been tempted to leave healthy gospel churches looking for fabricated kingdom of God signs. It's going on right now in Portland. Uh, People are looking for miraculous healings to charismania, to lots of lights, to professional sounding bands with amphitheater-like experiences on one side. Looking for kingdom of God type outward signs. Or perhaps they're returning to an older system. So they're looking, they're looking to, the, uh, to Catholicism or Greek Orthodox with its literal priests. With its literal temples and feasts and, and various sacrifices. Looking for the visible kingdom where they can say, yep, there it is. Yet, yet our text reads this morning, the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. So then anything that we build that is done by man or human means or human invention or human counterfeiting cannot be the real. It cannot be the true. And it cannot be the better. Then what is clear is Jesus Christ from these verses is our better high priest with a true ministry. Which is what we move on to now in verses 3 through 6. A better work. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. What, are we, what we are then to ask, really, is what kind of offering this high priest would bring. Uh, what kind of sacrifice would it be? Would it be bulls? Would it be goats? Would it be some sort of uh, incense and spice and gold? What is it that this, that this priest would bring? But the author quickly gets our minds off of the earthly and back to the heavenly. Now, if he were on earth, verse 4, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Jesus was not a suitable priest church for the earth because he was not born under... That system as a Levite. He was born under the tribe of Judah. And further, what we find is that chapter 7, verses 22 through 25, tells us that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priests. Further, the earthly priests were merely, what were they all along? What were they all along? They were just a shadow of the reality. This is what verses 5 and 6 hone on here. uh, Chapter 8, verse 5 The earthly priests, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ... 
who has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. The work of Jesus, our high priest, is far better as all the sacrifices and all the rituals of the old covenant system were merely just imaging by design what is the reality in heaven. They, they, they were just blueprints. They were blueprints that God created to point us so that we'd recognize the reality of it when we see it in Jesus Christ and his ministry now. God didn't just say, well, you know, I think I'm kind of onto something here with the, with the Moses system. And so I'm going to build this up and, well, with the David system and then I'm going to keep it going forward. I, I think I'm onto something. Rather, what the text says is, by design, God had this in mind all along. And so he builds this back into it so that we'd recognize that as we get to the new covenant. And the reason that he would be able to do this is because the earthly priest service was ultimately ineffective. And therefore, God's work as a priest would be in stark contrast. Where the text reads that Christ had to have something to offer, a sacrifice, it assumes we know what kind of sacrifice he's talking about. And the reason is, unfortunately, we're just, we're jumping into to chapter 8, but if we had been going through seven and, and 6, 7, and 8, we would have caught that in chapter 7, verse 27, this is a key verse. If you are taking notes, you should underline or you should note this. Chapter 7, verse 27 He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he was offered up himself. Jesus' sacrifice then is particular. It's not repeatable. It's unique. It's exclusive. It's singular. It's one. It was his broken body and his blood poured out. And it's easy to slip right past it as you see the the fact that it was just one. There only needed to be one. But in chapter 8, verse 1, I slipped right past it. Did you notice what this high priest was doing? This Jesus high priest is sitting. Sitting. High priest friends don't sit. They're busy working. They're busy getting to work. They're in the temple. They're moving about. They're, they're overseeing the affairs. They're offering up for the sins of the people. They're overseeing the other priests. It's busy, busy work. They're day after day, night after night working. This priest, though, he's sitting. I mean, is he, is he sitting on the job? No. His work is done. There's no more work to be done. Catholics used to tell us and say, that they were in agreement, and they are on the personhood of Jesus. In other words, we're, we can hold hands and sing kumbaya when it comes to Jesus is king. Jesus is God incarnate. But when it comes to his work, oh no. They would say that Jesus' work was only part of it. They would say that Christ may have swept the road, but you, friends, still need to muscle your way down it. But in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 11, also mirroring this passage we're in right now, it says, every high priest, listen, stands. He stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which will never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all that single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting, just blissfully waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, quoting Psalm 110. 
I'm sorry, but from that passage, it really does seem like Jesus paid it all. Notice we don't sing Jesus paid in part, but we sing Jesus paid it all. Friends, you know, I know you've heard this before, but it's, it, it's worth repeating and it's worth re- remembering and drawing to your mind. You recall what Gautama Buddha's last words were to his disciples. He's on his deathbed. He's dying. He brings them in and says, I must impart to you the most important wisdom that I have for you. Strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. Meanwhile, Jesus from the cross cries out all the way back to Gautama Buddha and all the way forward to the gathering church this morning and says, it is finished. It is done. It's over. He's provided everything we need. And therefore, friends, he sits down. Some of you here have yet to embrace this kind of a high priest as your king, the singular one. You know there's a debt to be paid, and how is it, friends, that you believe then when you look outside and you and inside of you, you know there's justice that needs to be, you know, from the political sphere to your personal life, you see injustices and you say, justice must come. But what about the justice that needs to happen here? What about the wrongs of all the injustice that's going on? How is it that you can make right all your wrongs when God has said every single wrong you ever commit is ultimately, at the end of the day, against him alone. It is not well with your soul. God has said in his word that there is no amount of good you can do to justify your own sins. Jesus himself says, apart from me, you can do nothing. There's not one thing you can do. You want justice, I want justice. And God, through Jesus Christ, our ultimate high priest, has provided the very justice that we need Only a high priest like Jesus could offer and bring this to us. It's what we saw in verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Jesus promises you that if you embrace him, it will be well with your soul. Verse 6 again. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. What we read here in this then is we see that we find in Jesus a better ministry with better promises and a better covenant. It's no less, friends, than God saying, this one is the one I meant to create all along. This is what I meant to cut all along. It's my, it's my best. No holding back. But then we must answer this question that comes along with this. Now, the old, old covenants and the old covenant in and of itself, what is going on there when we get to the new covenant? Did God, just for the sake of analogy, did he say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to dust off one of my old albums, and then I'm going to remaster it for a greatest hits version in the new covenant? Or did God come up with something altogether overwhelmingly new? And so to answer this, we simply just jump down to verse 13, which comes directly after quoting Jeremiah 31, verse 13. It says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The author says, obsolete. It's like a gallon of milk. 
Once that gallon of milk starts to go bad, whether it's the date or the pull the top off and you smell and you know this, this is just not right, it's obsolete, it's outdated, it needs to be chucked and you buy a new one. This, this word actually here in the original text where it says new, in the New Testament and as well as in ancient Greek, that, where that word new is used in this context, it actually has to do in reference of replacing something that was old. It's a replacement. Something's old, outdated, or as our text says, obsolete, and therefore there's a replacement for it. And therefore, we're not looking to buff up the old covenant. We're not looking to revamp it. We're looking for the new covenant to complete and end the old covenant. Why? Because the old covenant served its purpose. No matter which old covenant you choose, Abrahamic, Davidic, Mosaic, they all find their completion in the new covenant. It's not a continuation. So friends, just as when you go down to uh, the Clackamas River and you see where the Clackamas River dumps into the Willamette River, Nobody goes down there and says, you know, this is, this is a great sight here. Uh, the Clackamas goes into the Willamette, and then they run in tandem. They run parallel all the way out to the Columbia. No, no, that would be foolish. What you would say is, ah, the terminus of the Clackamas River has come at the Willamette. There is a completed factor there. Now, granted, the, the Clackamas is feeding into the Willamette. It's adding to the, the Willamette. It's found its completion, it served its purpose by dumping into the Willamette, hasn't it? And further, when the author here says what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, we can almost assume that what what is meant by that is from the perspective of the author of Hebrews' day, that he's saying during the first and second century, the old covenants are about to to, to wind down and the new covenant begin to on-ramp. But I think actually more likely what's going on here is I think that the author of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah and it's in Jeremiah's day where Jeremiah is saying, no, 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 here 600 BC is where the old covenant is already winding down and is becoming obsolete. Hmm. That means the old covenant was expired completely by the time Jesus says, At the Last Supper, this is the cup that is poured out for you that is the new covenant in my blood. The new is in. The old is already out. Now, church, why is it that we emphasize this point? It's because it actually practically plays out in how we walk out Jesus' command to repent and be baptized. As you read Hebrews 8, 9, and 10... Helps How you read it basically helps determine whether or not you're going to baptize your babies or whether you're going to wait for them to have a credible faith. See, the argument for our brothers and sisters who are Presbyterian is that the Abrahamic covenant or is more or less being revamped in the new. Now, please understand, and you must understand that I'm not anti-Presbyterian. I hope you caught earlier I actually quoted from a te- Presbyterian on this passage. So that's not the point. But the point is, this is important in how we think about how we're living life as we repent and baptize. And so, therefore, rather than being called to circumcise our infants, the the Presbyterians would say we're now going to baptize them as an entrance into the covenant family. Now now recall, how how did you enter into the covenant family originally? Well, you you were born into the family and then you were circumcised as a sign of entering into the covenant 
right? So it was a bor- being born into and then the sign. How did you come into that? Well, you were born as a descendant of Abraham. You were a Hebrew, born a Hebrew. But now, friends, are we born into this covenant, the new covenant? Yes, we are. We, we too are born into this. It's exactly what happens when you become a Christian. You're born into the covenant. Not physically. No, no, no. It's not something that you can be physically born into. It's something that we must be spiritually born into. We are born again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's a spiritual birth by spiritual means. It's why the new covenant celebrates over and over that being a Jew, a Gentile, slave, free, male, female, it doesn't matter. Only thing that matters is the ultimate fulfillment in that we become born again. And then as a sign of being born again, we are baptized. The new covenant then completes the Abrahamic covenant by truly providing the offspring promised, Jesus Christ, and through Jesus, the church. The new covenant completes the Mosaic in providing the Israelite in whom there is no deceit. The new covenant completes the Davidic covenant in giving us a king who is wise, just, righteous, and eternal. Thomas, it kind of sounds like perhaps you're downplaying the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Like maybe we just need to rip our Bibles in half and get rid of the Old. Well, church, I, I hope you'd explore this more because if you, if you understand the covenants in the old, coven, the old Testament in this way, actually what I'm doing is not downplaying the Old Covenants. I'm heightening them. I'm allowing them to fulfill their ultimate purpose, which has always been all along to point you and I back to Jesus Christ, the Savior on the cross, our high priest. It's not that the Old Covenant was... Or the new covenant is really glorious and the old covenant is ugly. Paul actually tells us, no, 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 no. The, both covenants come with their glory. But what he says is, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that the old covenant came with glory, but the New Testament glory far outshines the old covenant glory. Just like when you, when you enter into a dark room in your living room and you light up a candle, where is it that your gaze goes? When the candle's burning, you're looking at that, that candle. But as soon as you stoke up the fireplace, you're now turning your gaze to the brighter, warmer glory of the new covenant in Jesus, a better high priest with a better work that was promised long ago. And so we'll close here with verses 7 through 13 that show us this this was promised in the new covenant. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one, and and each, they will not, uh, sorry, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old, is ready to vanish away. Why is it that the Old Testament has fault with it? It was dependent upon man. 
The new covenant is dependent upon God alone. This is why six times in this chapter, notice the dominant use of the first person. And it emphatically underlines here for us the divine initiative. So he says, I will make, I will put, I will write, I will be, I will forgive, I will remember no more. This bold quote from Jeremiah 31, it's the longest Old Testament quote And it unveils just how good the new covenant is, highlighting how due to the sinfulness of man, the old covenant brought death and separation, but the good news is the new covenant brings not only forgiveness, but obedience to God. The new covenant is God's promise to be in relationship at great cost to himself because of his sacrifice. When we hear an artist saying something silly like, this is my best work yet. You, you might be actually thinking, you know, I, they're probably just hyped up about their own work. Or perhaps maybe you, you sense they're being a little bit disingenuous and you don't really believe them at all. But when God says it, friends, we have every good reason to believe this. That this is his best. It is his better. This high priest, this covenant, they do what they promise. And they accomplish for us far better than we even yet know. How is it that Jesus, by the way, is an effective high priest? Well, because his sacrifice is built on the foundation of better promises. This is what we find as we back out of of just chapter 8, looking at the whole of Hebrews. We find that his sacrifice is spiritual and heavenly, not just merely physical and earthly. We find that it is eternal, not temporal. We find also that it is real, not a shadow. And this, friends, is why we sang earlier, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads in me. How is it that you would even apply the reality of that, of that verse? Well, it's given to us in the song. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Do you see the gravity of verse 12? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God looks at you this morning and he says, was, I'm sorry, was there something wrong here? Because I'm just not, I don't even recall there anything, I, I've always been in a joyful relationship with you. That's how he looks upon you. What would that look like in your life if you had that tr- sort of true forgiveness resonate deep down? What does it look like in your life knowing that the Father remembers your sin no more? At times, it might seem unbelievable. You look back to your past wretchedness. It can haunt you. It can come up at the worst moments. You look back and you see the wretchedness of your sin. Or as a repentant Christian, even now, just that ongoing daily struggle with sin can just beat you down so that a passage like this can be sometimes sinfully hard to believe that God would forgive our sin, that he would remember it no more. There once was a Japanese war pilot, Nobuo Fujita. He knew exactly what it was like to wrestle with needed forgiveness. In the middle of World War II, Nobuo, he had a plan on how he was going to attack the U.S. He says, I have an idea. I'm going to attach my little plane to our submarine, our Japanese submarine. We'll go over by the Oregon coast and outside of a town there of Brookings, Oregon, the submarine will arise And you will catapult my plane into flight. 
and I will drop bombs on Brookings and in the forest, lighting a fire, destroying the Oregon forest. Well, 1942, 15 miles off the Oregon coast, the submarine rises up. Nobuo Fihida, in the middle of the night, he gets into his plane. Strapped in the seat with him is his family's 400-year-old samurai sword. It was a thing that fighter pilots would put in their seats with them for good luck. Also on board were several bombs that Nobuo had decided at key points he was going to try to drop them. For whatever reason, when he gets over into the forest there, he drops the bombs, he sees the, the flash of white, and he heads back to his submarine. Only two of the bombs dropped exploded. Unbeknownst to Nobuo, the ground was actually wet in Oregon. Imagine that. And, and the fire actually doesn't spread. And in fact, there was a fire lookout. They see it. They stamp it out. The town of Brookings was just almost puzzled on what had happened. 20 days later, Nobuo decides, we'll do it again. And he fails to get a forest fire going the second time. After returning home, the war is over. Nobuo, he goes back to simple life. He becomes a, 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 a hardware store uh, worker, and he basically lives quietly, and he doesn't want to talk about the organ raids. But over the years, something happens in Nobuo's heart. His war pride about what he had done, it shriveled into guilt that haunted him, and it wouldn't let go. He didn't even hurt anybody in the bombings. He didn't even start a forest fire, even though he tried to burn down our, our country here. And yet, he intended on killing us, and yet he intended on destroying and what ultimately happened was this guilt destroys him. 20 years later, the citizens of Brookings, Oregon, they reach out to Nobuo, and he is shocked and puzzled that they want him to actually fly to the town. And they want him to pay a visit. And he thought, great, I will go to the town. I'm going to offer an apology to Brookings, Oregon. And, I'm gonna, and, and if they will accept my apology, then I will give him my 400-year-old family samurai sword as a gift to them. But if they greet me, with anger, I will take the samurai sword and commit seppuku, which is Japanese suicide. And so he gets on the plane. It lands just outside of town there in Brookings. And to his great relief, the people welcome him warmly with open arms. Grace and mercy was bestowed upon Nabua. It changed him forever. He made three more trips to Brookings over his life. With joy, he planted a tree where he dropped his first bomb. In 1997, Brookings got word that Nobuo was not well. He was about to die. Urgently, the town flew a representative to Tokyo. And they had made him an honorary citizen of Brookings. Can you believe it? it basically, the next day, he's 85. It had been 45 years after his second bombing. And Nobuo passed away with peace in his past and peace in his heart. Can you imagine Sins pardoned, memory of it forgotten, the work needed already accomplished for you, righteousness embedded within. To be welcomed as Nobuo with warmth rather than anger, this is the joy of the new covenant. John chapter 2 with the wedding scene at, the, at Cana, the master of the feast sees the miraculous work that Jesus has done by turning the water into, the, into wine and he says, everyone serves the good wine first. But when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have saved the best for last. 
God saying, this is my best work yet. It gets no better. This is what I intended to do all along. I've saved my best for last. And so we sing, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Did you catch that line? My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. And you bear it no more. It is well. It is well with my soul. Let's pray.